Why me, when you are feeling really blue, when the world has turned against you, and you don't know what to do, when it pours colossal raindrops, and the road's a winding mess, and you're feeling more confused than you ever could express, when the saddened sun won't shine, when the stars will not align, When you'd rather be inside your bed, the covers pulled above your head. When life is something that you dread and you have to ask, why me? Then when the world seems right and true, when the rain has left a gentle dew, when you feel happy being you, please ask yourself, why me then too? Well, welcome back to another episode of the Jury Room Aftermath. I hope you guys enjoyed the John Wayne Gacy episode. Definitely a a sick human being, an individual that has definitely inspired culture in the most negative kind of way ever. So I just wanted to take the time out and just say thank you to everyone i don't know if you guys heard but we are now over we crossed the twenty thousand download mark so i'm just i'm blown away it's just crazy so with that being said as a thank you to the to you the fans the listeners the subscribers if you want your chance at 25 dollars, send me an email jerryroompodcast at gmail.com The winners will be announced on July 3rd. Just enter for your chance. Just send me an email. That's all you have to do. Say hello. Let me know where you're listening from. Just say, hey, give me your money. Just whatever. Share it with your friends, your family. Leave a review. It's always free to leave a review to let your favorite podcaster, favorite anything know, hey, you're doing a good job. Don't forget, till the end of the month, still doing... The Cussing Candles campaign, you can go on to their Etsy shop, which I will leave a link below. Just use the code JURYROOM at checkout for 15% off of your order. That's right. Use JURYROOM at time of checkout and you get 15% off of your order. Not only will you be getting money off, but you will also be helping us donate to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. How awesome is that? I really want to say thank you to the ladies over at Cussing Candles for giving me the opportunity to, you know, give you guys a chance to to give back to a cause. So thank you. And again, thanks for everyone for their support. I want to give a huge shout out to everybody on social media. There's so many people out there that support the show and I just, I'm blown away by everybody. For everybody who's listening, thank you. I can't do it without you guys. From you guys sharing the podcast to to listening to following to just broadcasting, I'm just humbled, and I I can't thank you enough. It's definitely a re- very rewarding experience, and I appreciate it. 
some announcements. I know I've been talking about it, but I'm in the process of making a YouTube channel. It's going to be something a little bit different, but it's still going to be the truth crime content with a little bit of a twist. So I think you guys will like that. As soon as the channel goes live with the first video, you guys will be the first to know. Stickers. Don't forget to get your stickers. I will, uh, the link will be below. Sign up and I will send, be glad to send you out some stickers. I'd love to see some jury room stickers out in the wild someday. You know, my goal is to just be, you know, the best damn true crime podcast out there. So, but that's not possible without your support. So thank you. You can go support the show over at Buy Me A Coffee. You can sign up for my Patreon. To the supporters that I have, thank you. Maggie from the Have You Seen It podcast. Uh, Jolene, again, from It Goes Down in the PM, you guys, thank you. Don't forget to go check out the Oracle Network. Definitely a lot of deserving create content creators on that network. Uh, you have Mask of Sanity, Victimology, uh, True Consequences, which you've heard the host, Eric Londine. He was a guest on the, on the show a few months back. There's definitely a lot of different content creators on the network, and they're definitely deserving to have their voice heard as well. So... Other than that, if you guys have anything for me, send me an email, reach out to me on social media, make it known that you're there because I appreciate you guys. So other than that, I hope you guys enjoy this Aftermath episode. On today's episode of the Aftermath, I have Madam M from the Madam M podcast, a small little podcast, but such a great host. I had a lot of fun. I did an episode on her podcast and... It was right around the time we were, I was doing Amanda Knox, so, you know, you can go check that out. But yeah, we just sit down and we talk about John Wayne Gacy and, and that. So, again, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for sharing. Without you, I'm nothing. So I appreciate you guys. You know, let me know you're listening. Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, $25 just for sending me an email. That's your chance. That's it. Don't forget to go get your cussing candle. Jury room at time of checkout for 15% off plus 15% of the sale will be donated to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So it's definitely a cause worth getting behind. So, but other than that, thanks for listening. And as always, stay safe. Hey, Leanne. Hey, Alana. Why should the people listen to Booze and Ghouls? Well, I don't know. Maybe because they want to be entertained and informed at the same time. And also, would you say that it's funny? Hilarious. He's also not a fan of men and will try to scare them off. <laughs> well, listen, I've scared off a man or two in my day, too. <laughs> He's still trying to run his ghost brothel. I love it. Check out Booze and Ghouls. A paranormal, true crime, and conspiracy podcast new episodes every friday hello and welcome to the jury room where we dissect some of the most heinous some of the most unthinkable and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth from cannibalistic serial killers to decades old unsolved mysteries these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night.
All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Jury Room Aftermath. I'm excited because on today's episode, I have Madam M from the Madam M podcast. Let's try that again. From the Madam M podcast, I have Madam M M herself. What the fuck, dude? (laughs) (laughs) Madam M herself, as she joins me, as we discuss none other than the disgusting human being that is John Wayne Gacy. Madam M, welcome to the podcast. Why, thank you. Uh, Yes, you heard it right. My name is Madam M. I am the current host of a podcast that is female-run and female-centered titled Madams of Murder. Although this true crime serial killer world is a deep, dark, nasty place to ask for equality, I'm diving into the deep, dark, nasty place and asking for equality. So if you are into true crime or you are into simply boosting the smaller things in life, please give my podcast a listen. It is out on anywhere you could find your podcasts. Uh, And if you look up any variation of Madam M podcast, Madam M pod, uh, Madams of Murder, anything like that, you should find any of my socials. I have a Twitter and Instagram and a Facebook. Uh, I promise I will be more active at some point, but I can't tell you when that point will be. So I hope you tune in and listen to the hectic ravings of a beginner podcast. Well, welcome to the show, Madam M. I'm glad to have you. Um, for anybody listening, if you would go check her out, we actually did a, an episode together on, well, not a, an episode together, but <clears throat> we discussed that Amanda Knox, um, which she put out an episode here a little bit ago. And so there's definitely an interview out there where her and I sit down and talk about Amanda Knox, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, I was more than gracious to go on and very thankful for the opportunity. So thanks for having me on your podcast as well. No problem. Well, let's get down to it. What are what first, what is your feeling on this, this heinous human being that is John Wayne Gacy? So I am of the genre of people that pay a lot of attention to the nature versus nurture aspect when it comes to like, when it comes to the serial killers. I think there, I think there might be a genetic disposition because that part has kind of been proven that there are some things that weaken the mind in that regard. But I definitely think it is more of a nurture type deal. Um, And we, I think Gacy is one of the best examples of this because we see him be abused by his father on a regular basis. He didn't really have an active motherly figure in his life. And with that being gone, you don't really get the chance to nurture your child. Uh, As a father, you you have a paternal instinct, but the paternal instinct is not anywhere near as strong as a woman's maternal instinct. And that's just because women have been forced for so long at this point in our lives to be forced into taking care of our children. You know, we do, we cook, we clean, we take care of the children. That's always kind of been our set roles in life ever since we became a patriarchal society. So I think with him not having that intense nurturing aspect kind of created a monster seeing as the only person that was raising him was a monster. I think something else could be that he he didn't really get to experience himself. So when he went to be himself, you know, while committing these acts, it was a, oh, wow, I just did something that I was told my whole life I'm not allowed to do. How do I cover it up? Right. And that's, you know, that's a huge 
uh, aspect that you see throughout the narrative of John Wayne Gacy's life is that, <clears throat> you know, he was trying to cover up a lot of shame, a lot of, a lot you know, of embarrassment, right. Of who he was and, and what he was. And, and there's nothing wrong with who he was or, or, or what he was away from the murder aspect, you know, murdering aspect of, you know, young boys and, and whatnot. But, you know, as far as his sexuality and such goes, he really didn't have anything to be ashamed of. But at that time, if you were a homosexual, you were branded as, you know, a weirdo. And, you know, it was, you know, let's, you know, scare the, sh let's scare him straight pretty much, you know. And the era so, of smear the queer. Right. And so I feel like that had a huge role into his developmental, you know, capabilities as from a young child all the way, you know, up until he became an adult and, you know, wanted to have the perfect American family and, you know, American life, I guess, so to speak, the wife, the kids, the picket fence, all that bullshit, you know? And I think that's what played a big role into, you know, and everybody's going to say, well, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of homosexuals that, didn't go and kill people. And then we're, again, we're not saying that him, you know, being in the closet is grounds for murder, right? That doesn't yeah. give him justification to go and kill people. There was obviously, like you said, there was something wrong. He was not nurtured or, you know, guided as a child. He only knew abuse, you know, from a very young age. And not that that is an excuse either, because there's a lot of people who are abused and don't kill people, right? So it's, it's that that's such a, a daunting conversation that there's really no right answer from from the beginning. There's always two sides to that coin, you know. Yeah. So, but John Wayne Gacy, though he was definitely he was able to, you know, separate his his life, you know, and separate the way he was able to be a family man, family man at home, and then you know, go and, and pretty much kidnap and kill, you know, young teenage boys, you know, while still getting his picture taken with the first lady, you know? Um, I think that's always the biggest shock when people first hear about Gacy's story is people don't believe that he could live this double life and that people around him didn't see him as this they just saw him you know as essentially the bozo the clown figure by night and a caring loving father by the morning right and i think i think that's one of the biggest things that people have a hard time understanding is that it is very possible that the people around him genuinely did not know about his private life right and people say oh if i was this person i would know i would know i would know no, you wouldn't. Do you know how many arguments your parents have gotten into? Do you know how many close friends have said that they don't like you behind your back? Right. Do you know how many employers or people that you've gone to interview for a, a job with have simply not liked you because of the, your name, because of the way you look, because of the way you sound? Like There are so many things in this world that you think you would know because they seem to very surface level. Right. But the amount of things you don't know for that exact same reason... It's preposterous. Right. And I, I I don't think anybody around him actually knew what he was doing because if they did, I mean, there's no way they would keep it a secret. I mean, oh, most definitely not. You, you know, especially like his wife or his kids or, 
you know, anybody like that, there's no way they would have kept that, that secret for, you know, for him not to be shamed, you know, maybe, maybe his wives knew that he was a homosexual and, and they accepted it or, you know, pretty much told him like, knock the fuck off or, you know, but they didn't out him either. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, who knows, but I feel like if somebody, if you, you are just as complicit as the murderer, if you keep that kind of secret, in my opinion, there's no way, there's no justification to be able to hide somebody's, you know, murdering young boys and, and be okay with that. I uh, see. I, I don't really know where I stand on that, but the only thing that I could say with that is that's why the American justice system has, you know, an accomplice charge. Right. And right. that's typically why the accomplice charge isn't as much as the, you know, the perpetrator's uh, charge. And that's been up for debate for years and years on years, whether those charges should be the same or if they should be one of the same instead of being two separate categories. So that's, you know, the legal side of things that is rather interesting. But on your point of like his wives probably knowing he was a homosexual, I actually fully support the idea and theory that his wives had no fucking clue because Why? if they if they knew the uh -huh. societal norm at that point that was ingrained into every human being's brain was either if you're gay you stay in the closet you don't say about it you marry a woman you have kids you go about your life and it's supposed to be the white pick white picket fence perfect little barbie world right the societal norm was if you are queer there is an issue. There is something psychologically wrong with you. Lobotomy surgeries would have been performed. Therapy would have been happening. X, Y, and Z things would have been in chronological order happening day by day by day. And his wives would have had no choice but to out him because that the, the issue of the time was they wanted to ruin queer people's lives. So he would have been outed. He would have lost his job. He would have had multiple divorces. His kids wouldn't have wanted to be around him. There would have been consequences. Yes and no. I, I can see your point, but you also, I resort back to, there's a lot of, you know, families back then where the father was, you know, sexually abusing his children and the wife knew, right? But yet the wife still didn't say anything. Because, because that was typically a norm. But also, they also didn't want shame on their family, right? Because when, if and when you say something, especially about, you know, some, we're going to call it depravity, right? Such as homosexuality, but it's, you know, in no way, short, shape or form it is. But back then, that's the way they saw it. Yeah, it was you a know, deformity back then. Right. You know, homosexuality and child molestation was in the same category as, you know, these are depraved, you know, individuals who there's something wrong with them, but yet wives weren't saying anything about abuse, you know, wives or husbands, you know, because I'm sure women were abusing children back then. Just, you know what I mean? Like anybody can be an abuser. Right. But I really think that, you know, that they maybe have known, but they didn't say anything because that makes their family look bad. Right. It was all because it you know, as a divorcee, like if you divorced your husband or you became a divorcee, you looked bad. You looked like a terrible person. You know what I mean? Like what's wrong with you? You, there was so much emphasis on, oh, let's get married and have kids. You know what I mean? But I still, 
as a queer person in Pride Month, hallelujah, follow the gay agenda. If you're a queer person, it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, <laughs> as a queer person who was closeted for a while in a time where sexuality was not really accepted, but it also wasn't denied. Right. It was hard. It was hard to understand that because I came out of the closet which, by the way, was a very clear glass closet. Everyone knew. And if you didn't, if you say you didn't know, <laughs> I am convinced you're lying to my face because there's no way you didn't know. Like, I was, I was open about how attractive female characters were in shows I was watching or how obsessed I would be with the female lead of something. And my allyship was just so strong that it was, like, questionable. Like, are you an ally or are you one of them? <laughs> and... I am a pansexual queer woman who uses she, they pronouns. So at the time, I would have been the object of the smear the queer game. Uh, everyone would have, you know, used me as a punching bag, as a target. And if my family would have said, you know, oh, if my family at the point at that time would have outed me, like, like let's say Gacy's wife was just wanting to out him, both of us would have been exiled, but our families would have been okay because they outed us. They said, oh, you know, this is the problem with our family. We're going to divorce. We don't want to be attached to them. Or this is my child, but I don't claim them as my child. I'm disowning them. They would have been given props because they're discarding essentially what was known back then as, you know, trash or as the deformed or the disabled. So it would have been, it would have been them trying to find the perfect American life, white picket fence, two children, loving wife, loving uh, husband. So, I, I get where you're coming with that, but I genuinely don't think that it would have been a possibility that they know that they had known. You know what? And that's a very fair point. I guess I hadn't thought about it like that. And that is a, you know, as you were talking right now, I was thinking back to stories that I've heard of, you know, lesbians, you know, or gay men being sent away because, you know, they didn't want to be, a, you know, they didn't want their family to be a part of it. So very much so maybe you are right. Maybe they didn't know. And maybe he displayed other kind of characteristics that caused, you know, his first wife to, you know, leave him and his second wife and to never basically talk to him again. Obviously, after he got arrested and, and you know, went to prison, they weren't going to talk to him. But, you know, his first wife never had nothing to do with him again after they divorced. So obviously, you know, she was like, I need to get the fuck away from this guy. Yeah, uh, I think. And I think his first wife divorced him because he probably didn't know how to control the, you know, he probably didn't know how to combat his sexuality. He'd probably been dealing with it for a long time as a child, and he knew how to cover it up to his father, even though his father clearly knew because you know your child. But he found ways to cover it up and hide it when you're a kid, because when you're a kid, you're not going to be, you know, sexually driven until you hit puberty. Then your brain starts to put that above everything else. But as a child, as a younger child, your brain just kind of goes about life as normal. If your parents tell you not to touch the stove, you're going to be like, okay, I won't touch the stove. Like, I get it. But once you start reaching the age of puberty and things like that, your brain starts to put sex and sex hormones before anything when you're a teenage boy. Um, as my health teacher likes to say, the horny always wins. So that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of the aspect for teenage boys up well into their early 20s. And for some, apparently it doesn't ever stop, but that's a them problem, not a societal problem. <laughs> and so the, typically it, for a teenage boy, when they hit the age of puberty, 
their brain doesn't think in the order of an anatomical brain. It doesn't, you know, do the frontal lobe, making memories, trying to get out everything. And then, you know, the prefrontal cortex that stores all of it, those two don't work together. Testosterone is first. Testosterone makes the choices, does everything first, and then your brain, your prefrontal cortex stores whatever your uh, testosterone has said and ships it out of your brain. And your brain says, all right, we're doing this. And your body has no other choice but to react. Right. And as a... And I can attest to this when you're, when you, when you're going through puberty as a male, you are very hormone driven. I mean, from the time it starts until mid twenties, you are very mm-hmm. much like, like, and you're so right now, high, let's go. Str- right, <laughs> so high, strong. So, you know, I don't even know how to describe it, man. It's different. It's on a, you know, and now that I'm a little bit older, I'm like, I look back and I'm like, fuck, you were an idiot. You did so many dumbass things, but it's like, you just really didn't you're biologically like biologically that's just the way it was for me yeah your brain didn't question right. it. your brain didn't try to either it just it said this is what i'm supposed to do so i'm going to veer off and go right. do it but i promise i didn't go and murder anybody <laughs> we'll just put that to rest right now we're just gonna clear up yeah, the air before clear, it even gets money that air. right right um, um but yeah john wayne gacy though i, I mean he definitely yeah his you know, his dad, a lot of people though, they, I don't know, man, just the abuse though. It's hard to justify his actions. You know what I mean? I don't think anyone's trying to justify his actions by saying he was abused. He was abused. He was abused. I think we're trying to just, I think we're trying to make up for the lack of empathy. I think we are trying to say, yes, this man, you know, was a victim of psychopathy. He was struggling. There was something wrong. And it started with this. And then it became this. And then it became this. We are essentially telling the Peter Pan syndrome story of John Wayne Gacy. Uh, For anyone who doesn't know that reference, Peter Pan syndrome is typically represented in uh, men who don't want to grow up. So after they reach, like, typically it's like 25 when people start to use the term Peter Pan syndrome. That's when. that's when you start continuously living this frat boy or party, you know, party child lifestyle and you're in your 30s, you're in your 40s, you're in your 50s and you do it until the day you die, kind of like Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, until he re- until uh, his most recent divorce scare, he lived a very party heavy life, you know, still continued his drug habits, still continued drinking, still continued cheating on Sharon and all of these things. So he was kind of the poster boy for this metaphorical Peter Pan syndrome. It isn't really a real medical condition, but it's, I mean, it probably has some roots in some medical background, but for a lot of it, the Peter Pan syndrome just simply is something most women use to describe um, a man who they see as never wanting to grow up. And I think that's kind of where Gacy lied for a long while. He didn't want to grow up because he was stuck in this lifestyle of, I have to, you know, I have to do the things I didn't get to do. I have to do the thing I didn't get to do. And then after he does the thing he didn't get to do, which was indulge in the homosexual tendencies, afterwards he sat there and said, I was taught I couldn't do this. I can't say this. I can't act this way. And that is what ensued the murder of his 33 teenage boys between the ages of 13 and 16 and a few above. Right. I can't, uh, I can't enjoy the stick in my mouth or, you know, whatever, 
you know, he did with them is, you know, it's one of those things that it's that shame aspect. I think he was afraid that, you know, in a way, I think he was afraid that his dad was going to find out who he was, even though his dad, you know, had died and who had died eventually. I think he was just afraid of the shame that he would feel if somebody caught who he actually was. And that's addressed a lot. There's a, there's a book that I bought uh, after watching a Lifetime movie at like 3 a.m. in the morning a few years ago. <laughs> uh, those movies were always the best. Like as a child, if you only know about those movies if you were the type of child that would go to bed and would wake up in the middle of the night and George Lopez is on the TV. Or like you fell asleep to cartoons and now there's a commercial about sex toys and you're on QVC for adults. You're like, how did we get here? <laughs> like you only find these movies after you've reached that stage of your life. And you know it's true. Like you know that you know what I'm talking about because it's happened so many times. But see, you know what's funny? So this is this is the the difference between your generation and my generation. When I was growing up... When I was young, I would say probably up until I was, I want to say somewhere between my teens, so probably 12 to 14, Mm -hmm. TV shut off at the end of the night, right? So, like, it would go back to static. There would be no TV, no nothing. I'm sure your parents have told you this, but. Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing on TV. There's nothing to watch. You, You get, like. Uh, the Home Shopping Network, maybe a PBS documentary, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. So, but now you've get young kids who wake up in the middle of the night and turn their TV on and get QVC for adults. Apparently, that's a thing. Yeah. I, I don't even think that I knew that that was a thing. So, I'm not saying that I didn't, but I don't think I did. So that's I don't think that's what it's called. It's, Obviously, there's some name, but that's essentially what it is. Uh, you know, there's QVC for the elderly that buy you this, you know, Jade watch for twelve dollars, and you're like, how did you get a? How did you what? And they're like, it was on the shopping network, and you're like, this is Jade, Grandma. Like I could, this right. is worth like this is worth thousands, maybe millions of dollars, and you paid twelve dollars. Like, yeah, right. How did we, first of all, how did we evolve as a society that we could do that? But second of all, that is, it is most definitely a thing. Um, I have, and I only know this because I am of the variety of people that have always needed something in my room playing or some form of light to sleep. I can't sleep in pitch black darkness because I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm afraid that I'm not alone in the dark as most people are. Um, And I think that started with a lot of the time I um, the male father figure in my life for a long time uh, worked a third shift job. So oh, he would okay. come home when it was dark and would, you know, give me a kiss or things like that. So that's where my fear came in. Is it like sometimes it wasn't expected and right. I'd like jolt myself awake and it'd be like a person and be like, ah, and I'd be like, never mind. It's the male father. It's the male figure in my life for a moment. Um, so obviously it calms down, but like that sticks with you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um and so that's, I think, where a lot of that stemmed from. So I've always had the TV on. Um, I currently have LED lights that, like, hang up in my room. You can kind of see them in the reflection of this TV back here. Um, oh, okay. But I constantly sleep with my LEDs on. I don't turn them off. Nothing. They are constantly running, which is totally fine because they can't catch fire. But they, they run 24-7. They don't really charge anything. They're LED, whatever. So... I they're constantly a different color I have like 12 I have like 24 colors I think that I can choose from and they're always on a different color or mode or I have my tv it's on a swivel mount so I can like move it to wherever I'm at in my room and 
I've always kind of had a TV that I can move about wherever I need it to in my room. And when I was a kid, I would, I slept in the corner of my bed. I, I had a very irrational fear that if I slept in the middle of the bed, there was going to be something wrong. So I always had to have one corner against the wall and my back was always against the wall. I, apparently I had trust issues as like a seven-year-old. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what happened to me, but apparently I had trust issues as a seven-year-old. And so my bed, my back is against the wall constantly as a kid. And I would move my TV so that I could see it, but I could also see the reflection of like my window. <laughs> so if like something were to happen, I could see it in my window. <laughs> so you have been a true crime junkie, paranoid person since you were a child is what you're saying. Apparently. And I don't know how that happened. Um, That's awesome. But I would... Yeah, my bed was always against a wall. Always, always, always. Even so much so that like the guest rooms I sleep in sometimes when I go to visit friends, when there's a wall, when there's a bed against a wall, I get real excited and I like sleep with my back against it still. Like I don't, it's just, it's normal behavior now, even though my bed is literally in the middle of my room. Like there's a wall behind it and that's it. Right. Um, But I, I did it all the time. And so it was so strange just so strange and i would wake up for whatever reason and it would be there would be a sex toy on the tv and I, at the time i had no idea what it was like concept wise knew what it was actuality wise no idea what it was and so i would just sit there and i'd be like what is what is happening and you know you'd fumble around look for the direct tv freaking giant remote you grab the remote and, you know, you change the channel and then you go back to sleep and you don't remember it in the morning until years later. And apparently now you either, you <laughs> see all of these videos on social media and they're like, you only know this song if you woke up in the middle of the night and it was on your TV. And it's like the George Lopez theme song. I'm like, oh yeah, I know this. Like I can sing the whole thing. Like I can, I can sing the whole thing. I can tell you the order of the people's names. Like I can do it all. And people are like, you what? And I'm like, now you know why I sleep all the time. <laughs> I didn't get sleep as a kid. I got to make up for the lost time here. <laughs> I, I'm making it up for it now. Duh, that's how it works. We got to do it. Right. And now for a quick break. Coming to you from an undisclosed location. Murder Incorporated. So, buddy, why do you like true crime? Well, Harley, I didn't until I started podcasting about it. Now I like hearing about people's stories and justice being served. How about you, Harley? Well, the truth is, my father was a murderer, and I think because of that, I've always been fascinated by the mind of a killer and the fallout to the families of violent crime. True crime stories also give me a much deeper appreciation for my family's well-being. What's your favorite episode that we've covered, buddy? Oh, that's easy. That's the Missoula Mauler, because the families of the victims receive true justice. For me, it's like having children. You can't pick a favorite, even though I do have a favorite child. We are Murder Incorporated. Download wherever podcasts are found. Now, back to the show. Wow, that was a tangent. Okay, where I were know. We? I was gonna. <laughs> I was sitting here. I'm like, where the fuck did we? How did we start on this one? Uh, it's because uh, I think we were talking about children, and this is how we got here. Oh yeah, that makes but sense. I don't remember somehow. Um, um, oh, we were talking about the book. Oh yeah, the book. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyways, this is going to be a real long one, guys. I'm so sorry. Um, but the book is titled The Last Victim, and it's by Jason Most. Um, rest in peace to his soul and his being, and I hope his family, if they ever listen to this type of stuff, uh, know that your son did, your son, um, yeah, your son did an amazing job with writing this, and his, I'm sure his life prior to this book um, was marvelous, and I appreciate all of the effort you did in raising him and trying to protect him, although it really failed to work. Um, this book is The Last Victim, and The Last Victim is about a college student named Jason Moss who is writing a thesis paper. And he chooses to write his thesis paper on some BS about, like, the psychology of serial killers or why, um, why the police never got convict confessions out of these people or something along those lines of, oh, I can do it better than the, I can do it better than the people that did it before. And so he does all of these things and it just, it's mind blowing. As you read this book, you know, you're reading all, how many pages is it? Let's see real quick. You're reading all 276 pages front to back, just indulged. You cannot stop thinking about it. And it talks about all of, it talks about everything. There are real letters from Gacy in this book. And uh, I'm going to genuinely read one of my favorites. This is probably one of the shortest, but it's uh, at the beginning of chapter 10. And chapter 10 is titled The Questionnaire. It says, on November 24th of 1993, I posted the following letter. Dear Mr. Gacy, my name is Jason Moss and I'm a full-time college student at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I'm 18 years old and I'm writing you because I thought you might get bored or lonely where you are and that you might want someone to correspond with. I'm sure that there are many others who write you, but I hope you take the time to write me back. You'll see that I'm a pretty nice guy and I know what it's like to be bored and alone. The constant screaming of my father keeps me secluded in my room when I'm not in school or at the gym. I hate it. I hate it here at home and I guess I understand what it's like to feel like you need a friend. At this point, I really don't know what else to say until you write me back. If you should need anything like pepper, wow, if you should need anything like paper or supplies, just let me know. I would be happy to help. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Your friend, Jason Moss. And that's the first letter that Gacy ever gets from Jason Moss. Ever. Wow. Right, which is almost like that, you know, reaching out with that friendly hand of, mm-hmm. hey, I understand what you went through and I understand, you know, what you felt as a child. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the book goes on in chapter 10 to finish off describing some of that. And then in chapter 11, uh, it starts off with setting bait. That's the title of chapter 11. You get the very first excerpt of the way Gacy thought when he wasn't around police correspondence. And it's genuinely terrifying, even though this is just a small excerpt and it's not really detailed, it is still absolutely bone chilling to hear this. Uh, It says one part of Gacy's letter in particular caught my attention because of the subtle ways he was trying to get me to open up to him, especially with regard to my sexual attitudes and behaviors. The letter reads as the following. One of the things you should know about me is that I am open-minded, outspoken, not very tactful, judgmental, liberal, bi, bisexual, and I say what I mean. The only thing is I don't assume, the only thing I ask is don't assume anything of me. If you're not sure, then ask. Nothing offends me and nothing is personal. No subject is off limits as long as you are willing to be just as open and honest with me. 
I dislike phony people. 80% of what I know about that about me is in the media is a fantasy. So don't assume, just ask. If you want my opinion on something or point of view, that's all you will get as I am not into stroking you as you and your own hand, as you have your own hand for that when you get your daily urge. Ha ha. <laughs> wow. What a I mean that is very straight and forward, you know what I mean? Like Yeah. And that's the first thing you see about Gacy in this entire novel. Up until this point, it was merely about Jason's aspects and what he wanted, what he was doing in his life, how he wanted to do it, all of this stuff. And then you get that. That's your first thing about Gacy that is not told to the media, not told by police, not told by forensics, solely told by him to you. Right. You know, and that's, you know, that's that's interesting i mean i wouldn't even know how i would feel reading a letter like that right mm -hmm. like man like holy shit this guy's just straight up telling me like don't believe what you say ask me like mm -hmm. you know if you want to know anything i'll tell you right like that's crazy it just um and then it gets even more detailed with that let with just that letter um as in the same letter uh, he writes and says, relax about who will see what you write as I don't share my letters with anyone. And even if you stand on your head to jack off, I would say go for it as I'm not into judging someone else. Same with being a male stripper. In fact, maybe you could explain that liberal side of you that you are that you seem protective of. Hey, life is an adventure. And as long as it's consenting and you feel good about it, then go for it. That male stripper line is actually what Jason used to lure Gacy into his life. He sent oh, okay. multiple, you know, he, there are multiple letters that you uh, read about through the, between these two chapters. And although you don't really see any aspects of them, uh, you, Jason says that he told Gacy he was a male stripper and then he was exploring his sexuality and that he didn't really know where he fit in solely to get Gacy to open up to him and, you know, give him kind of the inside scoop on what was happening. Uh, he even goes as far so Jason in every letter he sends like a photo of himself as most pen pals for prisoners do uh, but this is even you know it's more eerie because Jason goes to the gym heavily just for these letters just for Gacy he's literally letting himself be manipulated because he wants to experience the full terrible bloody gruesome gory side of Gacy right that's crazy so he pretty much in an essence you know let himself be manipulated yeah he by mm -hmm. John Wayne Gacy yeah he did what most humans don't have the will want or way to do so he shut off his problem think he shut off his you know thinking ability in regards to his own safety he disregarded he, you know, he disregarded his own safety. He said, I don't care what, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it sounds like. I am doing this. I'm committing to it. He essentially went like, um, Heath Ledger in the Joker type commitment. I wonder and, though, if part of that had to do with the illusion of safety of, uh, you know, well, John Wayne Gacy can't actually get me because he's in prison. See, but if so, I watched when I watched the movie, the movie is also inspired straight from the book 
goes right into it. Uh, I couldn't find the movie again for the life of me. I have tried for the past like three years and I can't find it. Um, but I remember one, I remember one scene before the long commercial break, which was insanely long for a TV movie. It was really long. The, the, um, narrator of the movie who was supposed to be like Jason subconscious says, uh, says something along the lines of, am I sure I'm safe or am I safe in theory? And that comes right before you see Jason actually go meet Gacy. He actually goes to the detention center, meets him, and in the book, there's a photo of it. All of you guys are going to have to find this photo, um, but I can show Kevin here real quick. He meets a lot of people, but this is, I think, probably the scariest photo I have ever seen in the entire collection of photos. Oh, wow. That's probably one of the scariest, most terrifying photos I've ever seen. If you look close enough, it looks like Gacy's, like, trying to smile. Right. Like, he's trying to force that smile. And Jason's just standing there, like... (laughs) Like, what do you you want? Right. Um, But he goes to the Menard uh, Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois, and actually meets with him. There's no guards in the room, nothing. It is solely these two men. And Jason doesn't really know how he feels about there not being any guards, but according to uh, Moss's account, all of the guards were under Gacy's thumb. They were controlled by this man because he'd been put on death row for so long that all of the guards essentially were on his payroll, metaphorical payroll. Right. And... which is crazy to me it because just, how would, what does he have to offer somebody? You know what I mean? Like he's a, a prison inmate. He gets so close to Jason Moss that when Jason calls the guards, Gacy's practically on top of him. Like Gacy is trying to be intimate, is trying to do this. And just because of the letters and the persona that Jason gave off, Gacy is trying so hard he's threatening jason essentially with like threatening jason with his life you know do these things or i I will kill you like you i um uh he doesn't say this but kind of the mentality of you've seen what i've done you know i can do it right which is interesting because gacy himself although at one point uh, confessed to the killings throughout the entirety of these letters and the rest of his prison sentence in life um he maintained his innocence similar to manson uh although i've told you i've done this before i didn't do it i didn't play any role in it this isn't mine it's just my you know the 33 boys were just found under my crawl space like it's not i didn't do it right they were planted there right the police put them there yeah because the police totally have access to 33 sodomized raped and tortured teenage boys <laughs> and then to just pin it on you some random some guy. random nobody that works as a children's clown at birthday parties like come right, on right that's crazy yeah no the whole book is an emotional roller coaster because you don't know there are some points where you read it and you laugh because there are some things that gacy says that are hilarious like um he said something he he inserts a lot of humor, but it's funny because the humor is very straightforward and dry. 
it's essentially like watching a serial killer version of The Office. Like, <laughs> it's it's real dry, and you don't really understand it until you've either been in like the true crime world for a while, or unless you've watched it over and over again or seen something someone act like this. But it's essentially the serial killer version of The Office. He gets it, it's real dry, but he gets so comfortable that he essentially starts just letting everything go and seems to not give a single fuck anymore and i think that's the also the turning point in the book where you get so scared for jason you sit there and you although you know what happened to him afterwards um unfortunately in 2004 he committed suicide because he couldn't stand um the trauma that these men had put him through and by men i'm referring to uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, Richard Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker, who uh, was a satanic man uh, in some regard. Uh, Gacy, uh, Manson, Dahmer, all of these kind of big-named people. He also talks to a few others, um, but he couldn't stand being these men's, you know, final say-so. They didn't want, he didn't want his life to be left in their hands. Although they, by the time he had committed suicide, they had all died. He didn't want his life to be left in their hands. So with the trauma and the depression and the anxiety and the paranoia that this um, project brought him, he ended up committing suicide by hanging in uh, July of 2004, I think. Oh, and that's, um, you know, but I think it's, you know, it's that he gave them, it's probably the, you know, maybe it's remorse or guilt or something of, fuck, I gave these crazy people, you know, a voice to near the end of their lives. You know what I mean? But that's true, but it wouldn't make sense for for somebody that started this project as like a college thesis paper. And then he went on to publish this book with the professor that he wrote his thesis for, Jeffrey Coulter, uh, who has a PhD. Um, if you go in, and you like at the beginning, you read the relationship between Moss and uh, Coulter. It's very very relaxed the professor isn't holding him to a high standard the professor even tells him he's not sure if he should do this but moss continues to do it so the determination to solely do it for the purpose of a paper wouldn't make sense with the regret that came afterwards so i a lot of the um reports have said that the reason he committed suicide is because he couldn't stand being a, you know he didn't want these men's lives to brew in him oh okay almost almost like in a sense he witnessed the crimes with never being there just from whatever exactly whatever they told him mm -hmm. so he almost in a sense got ptsd like somebody who went to war uh without actually going to war yeah um Ooh. and that's why the book is titled the last victim because all of these men did all of these brutal crimes and heinous acts. And this man was in fact their last victim. They no longer could torture or hurt or mangle anyone. They, it was wow. Moss. After that, there was nobody. That's crazy. And I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those situations that, I mean, you are even in the true crime world. I mean, just doing research and, and talking about it, you know, it takes its toll. I mean, there's, you know, times where I'm like, oh, like, you know, you, you quench, you know, and you, you're like, 
but it's still that depravity that you're just like, why, why the fuck are you like that? You know, why the fuck did you do this? You know, why, what is the purpose of whatever the action was, you know, like Mm -hmm. Richard Ramirez or, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or, you know, I fucking hate him, but Ted Bundy or, you know, all these different people that it's just like, why, why are you like this? And that's that, you know, you know, with being respectful to the, you know, you always have to keep mm-hmm. the victims, you know, as much respect. Yeah. As the victim's possible. lives are just as important as their, right. you know, they're, claim they're, to fame. Right. And they're more important, you know, because it, in reality that the victims, this was their, you know, last day on earth, you know, was yeah. they were dealing with, you know, a fucking psychopath and it's, mm-hmm. it's sad, but the, you know, like Jason's story is it's, it's terrible because it's probably one of those situations where he stood back and he looked and he's like, fuck, he's like, my life became their lives. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and with, although this episode isn't about Dahmer, um, he actually has an amazing psychological profile that is quite similar to Gacy's in regards of why they committed their, uh, why they have their claim to fame. So although Dahmer was, uh, Dahmer, if anyone doesn't know him, by the way, have you been living under a rock? Um, Because his name, no matter how dead the case may be, his name gets brought up in a lot of things when related to true crime, solely because him and Gacy are kind of known as like the modern day pioneers of the serial killing world. Their names have blown up so much. Um, And Jack the Ripper is, you know, no one gives him his props because he was never caught kind of same like the zodiac killer no one gives them their you know their claim to fame because jack the ripper didn't really have anything going for him but the zodiac had all of these you know cryptic notes or whatever so Dahmer's psychological profile is really really similar to gacy's they were both homosexuals that really couldn't express their homosexuality Dahmer obviously went on to live his life and you know sleep with multiple men and all of this but as a child he has so much religious trauma and trauma from family that he was terrified to even think about it right pray the gay away yeah that's really what he did and obviously it doesn't work that's not how that works um, if you say can that convert method of conversion or conversion at all works, please do some research on it because it genuinely doesn't. It just teaches you how to suppress um, that part of your brain, which actually isn't healthy for your brain, for the world, or for anybody. So don't don't listen to that stuff, which I know is real popular, uh, which is a real popular conversation around Pride Month. Um, but he goes on to live his life and sleeps with men, and you know has multiple partners. But he does this because, just like Gacy, he is a sexual deviant. They both drive, they both get pleasure from the crimes that they are committing. Um, and I hate saying this because it throws a lot of dirt on the kink and BDSM communities. But both of these men were super, super heavy into that BDSM kink lifestyle. Which for... Um, which for Gacy was not heard of because he's supposed to be a straight white man. You know, it's supposed he's supposed to be a straight white man. Sorry, um, and just you know live his life with his wife. And you know, you never talk about what's going on in closed doors because that's a taboo subject. Sex is a taboo subject at the time. And being uh, and a political figure, nonetheless, too. Yeah. Um, but with Dahmer, he was queer. You know, and kind of openly queer for a little bit of his life, and so it was almost expected 
that he was a sexual deviant or participated in this type of lifestyle. And people still are surprised when you talk about it. But the reason he wanted the, you know, the reason why Dahmer became a cannibal and why he poured acid into, you know, his victim's head, well, he one of his victim's heads, is because that is what, in his twisted brain, got him off. It was thrilling. It was fun. It was energetic. The same way as, like, a, a brat enjoys poking fun at their partner and, you know, challenging them. He, Dahmer enjoyed, you know, eating his victim's flesh, which is disgusting, but he enjoyed that and apparently was a real good cook, <laughs> which is terrible. Right. That, that's so funny. That totally another random tangent, but I've gotten stuck. I'm sure you've seen him, but uh, I recently found his name is Mr. Ballin on YouTube. I don't know if you've watched his videos or not, but he does like, um, unsolved mysteries, like, uh, mm -hmm. death pictures. Like he gives a backstory and then he shows a picture or whatever, the, whatever it is. But mm -hmm. he did a, uh, there was this cannibal in, I want to say it was Japan and, uh, he ends up getting out of prison or mental health facility or some shit. They let him out. And then it, it was so like, I couldn't believe it happened. It was a fuck. It's disgusting that it happened, but he, since getting out of prison, he's like written books and, you know, basically like, oh, I'm going to do this again before I die type of thing. But mm -hmm. they've had him on TV as a fucking taste tester to food. Like cooking shows. He is a fucking taste tester. I'm like, like I started fucking dying because I'm like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's the, like, how the fuck could you do that? Like, here's a fucking cannibal, but here, come taste some. Here, come taste this that. chicken. Yeah, he's a judge on a fucking cooking show. I'm ah! like, that's <laughs> hilarious. I mean, it's hilarious. Uh, that that's part hilarious, is, but, but that's awful. Oh my yeah, God, that's terrible. It's like, right. I'm like, oh. I'm like, the, when I first heard it, I just started cracking up and then I, I rewound it a little bit and I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, that really happened. All right. Well, that's awesome. But anyways, that was. Oh, that's terrible. Um, yeah. You bring while it up. We're, this is another tangent, but uh, I'm going to suggest it just because I brought in that uh, this topic uh, for anyone who's like interested in kind of like the funny or like unknown side of the BDSM world. There's a show on Netflix called Bonding. That's really, really good. It's about a psychology student who is moonlighting as a dominatrix to get through psychology school. And it's hilarious. It, she, it really shows like the duality of people. Uh, and she has a, she has a, they have to present like, you know, a part of them or something like that for their class. And she was going to do, she was going to do something that was, you know, light and kind of stupid. But she decided that she was going to show off that she was a dominatrix to her entire psychology class. And so she shows up in, you know, thigh-high laced-up leather boots, a leather jacket, leather brassiere, and shorts. And, you know, was carrying on, carrying around a uh, braided whip, like, in her bag. And when she gets to her class, she undoes all of this and she says, you know, says something and she says, I am a dominatrix. And everyone looks at her, like, perplexed. They're confused. They have no idea what's happening. 
and she throws the whip, like cracks it hella hard. Like, you know, people in that studio jumped when they heard that whip crack because it's loud. And she cracks it and says, get in the chair. And she just sits there and she waits for somebody to self-volunteer and get to get in the chair. Someone gets in the chair. She cracks it again and says, now who wants to get, now who wants to get tied up? And the show ends. What? And it just, like that scene ends and they, she goes about her life and you learn a little bit more and all of this stuff. But that's, it's a really incredible show if you want to understand something with a little bit more of a lighthearted feel. But that'll help you understand what we're talking about when we say like the sexual deviance. Although this, that is more normal and expected uh, it, as, as a sexual behavior and more accepted uh, as the years go on. It is still something that many people find taboo and struggled with seeing, but Gacy and Dahmer and many, many, many serial killers were massive sexual deviants, and they enjoyed getting their rocks off to things like that that in their time frame might have been taboo and might have been considered really wrong. But now in our time, we're like, yeah, okay. Right. And that's, you know, that's, you know, that's a testament to which we're still not even nearly where we should be, but we've definitely come a long way from, you know, Dahmer Sage, from, you know, John Wayne Gacy, from, you know, from a lot of them, you know, you, you see it a lot, which, you know, with most serial killers and not all of them, but they do, um, they kill animals and such, you know, when they're, you know, young kids and through, you know, being a teenager and such, you know, or they start having fantasies, you know, about, you know, women or men, you know, being strangled or, you know, watching it happen or jerking off to it or, you know, masturbating, I guess would be the politically correct term to say it. But, um, you know, so, but they say that like, if during those formidable years when their sexuality is developing, that if there's that, you know, that killing and that sexuality and they, then they fuse together, that's where, you know, they can't break it back apart. It's, you know, it's ingrained in them that they have to, you know, in order for them to get off, they have to have some sort of of horror in it. And it's... Mm -hmm. And now for a quick break. Hi, I'm Chelsea, the host of Crime and Crime Again. On my podcast, I cover lesser known true crime cases. I tell the stories that you may not have heard before. Join me in bringing light to the stories of the missing and murdered, and being a voice when their own has been silenced. You can find Crime and Crime again anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Now, back to the show. I mean, I don't know, man. I can't get off to killing somebody. That's kind of gross. There's a whole, well, you're not the only one that can't, but you're, these people also aren't the, like, these serial killers aren't the only ones that can. Um, because if you look at the, you know, sex industry, there are whole categories for this stuff, which is uh, truly kind of hurt, like, hurtful to a lot of these communities. And the only reason I know, I only reason I know about this stuff is because I enjoy the psychology behind it. So when reading about you know how Dahmer or Gacy went about their lives you obviously learn about how they went about their sex lives how they did these things and there are and it's a currently it's kind of one of our hot issues our hot topics of the porn industry being abusive 
So, you know, they're taking what these men and women sexual deviants have done to their victims and they're making it a normal, which is terrible because you, if you're a true crime junkie, you're like, oh, these people are influencing modern world. And it's terrible. Like there are lots of, there are, there's lots of speculation. Um, if anyone remembers back in 2016 when killer clowns were the rave uh, and like the mass thing, which by the way was terrifying was because at the time, scary. at the time I lived, uh, I was going back and forth two two and a half hours one way back and forth between my current state and my little hometown. And it's all highway. So really you're, there's nothing there. But I, you live in a small town. Once you cross that line, you're in a small town. There's nothing else to do. And I don't live in the best part now. There was nothing to do then. You know, the best thing we do in both scenarios, the most fun you could have is you could either go to an amusement park that's two and a half hours away or 45 minutes, or you go to Walmart. Like, they're, <laughs> like that's the type of environment I live in. Right. And so... It was terrible to see people like John Wayne Gacy influence this because that's one of the biggest theories is that people that portrayed the killer clowns aspect, which coincidentally the media dubbed Gacy as a killer clown. Wow, my email just went off in my headphones. That was really loud. Um, the media kind of dubbed Gacy as the killer clown. It's terrible when you see that thing then come right back into life. And that's where all of this kind of connects. Um we started off by saying this solely because all of this is kind of connected and everyone's not, you, if you don't know why, do some research into it. Look up the psychology about how true crime can be connected to the real world and you will find amazing parallels that you never thought existed. Right. And it's terrifying. It is terrifying. I mean, the reality is, is that a lot of that fear in, you know, culture comes from, you know, John Wayne Gacy, like that, yeah. that, you know, oh my God, I'm afraid of clowns. Well, I mean, clowns are fucking scary to begin with. Like, but that are fear, you a cholerophobe? Not necessarily, but I'm not like a huge fan of them either. You know what I mean? It's oh, not I like love I'm, them. I love clowns. Some of them are scary though, man. Some of them are like way terrifying looking. I can't get past it. When I was a kid, I had a babysitter and her husband was a clown. Like he worked for a big circus type clown. And so I, every time I see a clown, I think of him. Uh, if you're still listening to this, shout out to you, Denny Bozo the Clown uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You made my childhood so much fun. Like he would make me balloon animals on the regular. It was so much fun. Um, I mean, but see, you're, you had that. You I had that positive interaction. Right. You weren't reinforced, you know, with mm -hmm. that. Oh, clowns are scary. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. not like I avoid them. It's just. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm pretty much neutral, but I stay away from them. Like, it's not like something that I actively seek out. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I, if I, if it, if it was possible, I would make a drink. Okay. If I was over the legal age of limit to drink, I would make a drinking game where you go through haunted houses and every time you see a clown or a clown like figure, you drink, you wouldn't know why <laughs> you would be black out by the time you were done with like well, two or three haunted houses. By what are you talking about? Through like half of it, you'd be blackout drunk because that's what like, Half of a haunted house is all clowns. Like you could not, probably do. See, a... but not not if you go to the right ones. Like if you if you go to the right ones, like Land of Illusion or Kings Island, like uh horror nights, like Halloween horror. 
those are like real ones. Like they have a hospital one, which is genuinely terrifying. They have uh, one that typically has like a two and a half hour line wait. And I'm just not down for that for a haunted house. I'll just walk around. Um, but it is, it, this haunted house isn't just like a haunted house. Like it's a whole giant section of the park that they block off for this one event. Just this one. And they have like 12 haunted houses, but just one has like half of this carnival lot park. And you go through it and it's one of the scariest things you will ever see because it's a mashup of like everyone's worst nightmares. That sounds terrible. But it's so much fun. <laughs> no, I love, I am all about horror and like going through haunted houses and stuff. They're fucking terrifying, but it's fun. It's, it's, you know, it's exciting. It's thrilling. But the clown aspect, I'm just like, it's, you know, it's a reality that people are afraid of clowns because of ha 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 this fucking clown right like yeah because of Gacy because of our 2016 killer clown scare which apparently tried to come back in 2020 before the pandemic and I was like y'all why are you why are you bringing this back why are no we we let it live and we were all terrified please don't bring it back right it's the clown challenge of TikTok or some stupid shit yeah apparently I don't know but all of that's inspired by these people. And it's insane to see that somebody like Gacy could influence what everyone thinks is normal life. Like this man inf- is influencing the way that certain people have viewed sex, the way that certain people view their own sexuality, the way that people view their own lives. And he's not the first to do it, but he's one of the most namely because his case was in such a trying time with all of that that he got caught i hate saying this but he got caught at the perfect time for society but at the worst time for his career because he was in fact a career killer you know there were 33 young boys in his crawl space but he was he got caught at the best time for society because society was trying to figure out what they wanted to accept, what they didn't want to accept, what was taboo, and what was no longer considered taboo. So when he got caught, he got caught in one of the best places socially to get caught because the world could form their a whole new opinion. And that's why he's so influential in all of this. Because his case kind of, I think, tripped a lot of that up and started to you know put the final touches on things that when people look at it they no longer considered people speaking out about being a victim as taboo it was now a necessity right and that's you know and you do bring up a very valid and fair point to that because there is a lot of you know cases like john wayne gacy that you know a lot of people started realizing fuck we need to start listening to the victims you know as before it was like you know, they, which had happened in John Wayne Gacy's case, you know, the police go to his house. He's like, no, yeah, we had sex, but it was consensual. Like, yeah, it was fine. Right. When, you know, he was able to talk his way out of it without the victims really being heard for what had happened. Yeah. And I don't, he, again, he's not the first person to do that, but I definitely think he, again, is one of the more namely, one of the biggest because of the way he did it because of how effortless he made it seem. Right. Well, you have brought some interesting insights and different ways to look at things. And I'm, I'm impressed. That's, 
Thank you. Thumbs up from me, man. So you got anything else on John Wayne Gacy? Anything you want to share? Um, any more? Any more excerpts? Before we leave, I would like to give. I'm gonna find. I'm gonna randomly search, and we're gonna find the most random letter from Gacy. We're not even gonna give context. We'll just read the random letter here. Um. All right. This is this is actually one of my most interesting ones. I think. Uh, if you ever get the book, it is on page 88. Um, it's a, in a, ch- I think it's in, a, ooh, it's in one of the later chapters. I'm, okay, it's in uh, chapter 15, titled Fictional Friends. Um, and this is one of the longer ones, um, but this is how it works. It says, he wanted me to see how innocent and natural homosexual encounters were. In his letter of December 28th, 1993, he described his first voluntary experience being sexually abused as a child so this is your little graphic content warning as i readjust so you guys can hear me um a graphic content warning just solely because uh, i haven't read this book in a while so i don't fully know what this letter is gonna look like but uh it's a long one so i'm gonna assume it's not the best all right the letter reads as the following regarding my first encounter i was 22 he and i went to dinner after work His conversation was about sex, I assume feeling me out. He said when he goes out, he has a 100% chance of finding something while I only have a 50% chance. I asked him to explain. He said if I went out and couldn't find a female, then I would go home and jack off. Whereas him, if he didn't find a female, he would find a guy to go get him off. Then the drinks came faster and by the time I left, I was high. But I drove him to his place, he asked me in for coffee, and instead we had another drink or two. I passed out on the sofa, but awoke like in a dream with something wet down between my leg. In the dark room, I could only see his head, but I didn't move, and we all had... Oh, nope. See, this is what I told you about the graphic content warning. Uh, it gets it gets intense. This whole series of letters gets really intense. Um, but it says... Um, but didn't move and all I had all seven inches of him going up and down my uh, up and down between me he seemed to know all of the right spots as he was lifting my hips and I felt his and I fed him uh, like a firecracker and it flooded uh, and dripped he continued to lick it clean returned my pants and went uh, off to bed I awoke in the morning never saying a single word had coffee and went home and took a shower Never has any girl gotten me off as well. It nearly was a year before I encountered it again, and then it was a mutual and wild drinking. But that's an excuse anyways, just like you're doing it with a TV, uh, um, which is then used for transvestite language. Um, Even not knowing you liked it, that's all that counts. So this man in this letter, which is not the first, uh, which I think is one of the first letters of that kind, But he goes, I kind of censored some of it, but he goes into very graphic detail about sexual encounters like this. And that just, that in in particular is like influencing a lot of ways that these people uh, like Dahmer and things like that play into our modern day society. Because most of us would have been like, whoa, like you got, you have to report that even for your time period. Like you have to report that. But because of the way his brain works, he thought, oh, it's fine. Right. 
from the abuse, from the trauma that he had already yeah. suffered earlier so, on in his life. I say this with a very heavy and full heart. If you are experiencing something that is in the slightest bit abuse, sexual misconduct, uh, verbal abuse, physical abuse, you know, sexual abuse, please reach out to somebody that is trusted. And there are helplines that you can Google. Um, I have a podcast where I, I give the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. You can reach, you can go to them and they will probably redirect you to another line. Um, but please, 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 please reach out to somebody because there are, there are things like this that genuinely happen and don't get reported and don't get put into books. They get put into death sentences for people. Right. So please reach out to that because I selected that letter to read last because not only is it the most impactful, I think, of all of the letters you see from Gacy, but it is one that genuinely changed the way I viewed his crimes. Uh, I mean, I can see it. There's definitely that that aspect of, you know, he he has associated being abused as being a normal way of life. Yeah. And that's not, that's not a way. That's not healthy. Either. Right. So uh, as we close out this podcast again, please check out my socials. You can find them with pretty much any variation of Madam M podcast, Madam M pod, uh, Madams of Murder. You can check me out on Anchor. Uh, you can just look up Madams of Murder or um, you can do the Anchor FM um, uh, website code with Murderous Women. Um, please, please be safe out there in the world with anything. Uh, people like Gacy don't just stop existing because Gacy doesn't exist. Um, it's, it's a dark world out there and that's kind of why we do this so that people realize that there is more to life than what meets the eye. And the macabre is definitely a heavy subject. Obviously it's macabre, it's death, but it's heavy because it impacts people daily and we don't get to see it so please take care of yourselves and i will definitely be linking to everything down below um the suicide prevention line is something that i feel like i put you know very great emphasis on because it's it is mental health is no joke and unfortunately there's been a stigma while we're getting better i feel like the stigma is still there that you can't really speak oh, up on how definitely. you're feeling and and you have to, in a sense, mask, you know, your day-to-day -day feelings. And so it's definitely, I agree, we definitely need to talk about it more. And, and we need to talk about, you know, or you just need to get help. If you need the help, get the help. It's out there. There's definitely, you know, people out there that's willing to help. Now, I don't want to end on such a somber note, even though we are talking about somber subjects. There is one question that I would like to ask you that I've asked every guest that I've had on the show. Would you mind answering? Sure. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? Ooh. Okay. So I'm definitely not going to be mustard because I hate mustard. So I don't want other people to hate me. Um, so <laughs> definitely not mustard. But if I could be one sandwich condiment, what would I be? I'm also not going to say mayo because I'm a white girl and saying mayo just is way too obvious. Um, <laughs> You're stereotyping yourself already. Yep. Um. Hmm. I kind of, this sounds strange, but uh, I kind of want to be ketchup only because 
it's not like it seems. You would think ketchup's main ingredient is tomatoes, when in fact it's vinegar and salt and sugar. And sugar. <laughs> tomatoes like the last thing. Yeah, tomatoes like one of the very last things. Right. But so ketchup. So Madam yep. M is ketchup, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be ketchup again solely because it's not like it seems. Interesting. Well, Madam M, thanks for coming on to the Jerry Room Podcast. It's been great having you. I hope to do it again because this is definitely a fascinating conversation, one that I feel like we could probably talk for eight hours about. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. Thanks for yeah, supporting no the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Stay safe and thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows lingering around the corner walking past your house at night so watch out stay safe and keep listening this has been the jury room <laughs>